Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 580, January the 20th, 1996, £1.50 every Wednesday. Your cover stars for this week are Green Day. Green Day and Life After Dookie. Can the punk rock millionaires survive 96? Also this week, Sepultura. Why did they jam with 80 year olds? Bon Jovi, eight page poster, pull out unseen shots and top competition. Siv, kings of hardcore, cool hit Britain. Ministry, filthy new album dissected. Also, Korn, Skunk and Nancy, Whale, White Zombie, Slayer, Video Nasty. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrangback Issues, Twitter, Kerrangpod, and email Issues at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you hear, then please do go leave us a review on either Spotify or Apple Music. That uh, really helps us out. Bumps us up the music charts there. And um, yeah, it means that other people can find this podcast as well. Uh, also, if you've got friends that you think would be interested in this podcast, then please do go and share it. Uh, this podcast with them Uh, there's lots to get through this week so I'm going to jump straight into it so this issue was created with the following stimulants a postcard from Africa from suave noise kings girls against boys Arsenal manager Bruce Rioch's touchline bust up with Newcastle's Terry McDermott Ace Films 7 and tear inducing babe an orange pylorid stress ball work experience chat marks killer tea round Phone calls from Silverchair, Brett Michaels, Bad Religion, and our old pal Axel Rose again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week, where we always begin news. John Bon Jovi's starring role in the romantic comedy Moonlight and Valentino is previewed in a one-hour video which comes free with the latest edition of the film magazine Empire. With the notable exception of John's minuscule non-speaking part in the Brat Pack Western Young Guns 2, this is the first chance that UK fans will have to judge the Bon Jovi frontman's acting talents for themselves. A cover-mounted video which is given away free with Empire shows the cinema trailer for the forthcoming Moonlight and Valentino the latest Whoopi Goldberg vehicle which has already been on general release in America. The trailer shows John alongside Goldberg and co-stars Elizabeth Perkins, Big, and Kathleen Turner, Body, Heat, Serial Mum. Bon Jovi features in two short clips. In one, a remark is made about his cute butt, while in the other, he jokes about the state of his hair. A UK release for the film is yet to be finalised, although there are tentative plans to coincide Moonlight and Valentino with Bon Jovi's UK stadium tour in July. The Empire video is expected to become a Bon Jovi collector's item. Elsewhere on the John Bon Jovi movie front, the singer arrived in London last week to start work on his next film, the erotic thriller The Leading Man. The role is said to require John to disrobe completely and will keep him in England for up to three months. John and his family are living in a rented house in London for that period. There is speculation that John will find a window in his schedule to perform at next month's Brit Awards, in which Bon Jovi have been nominated in the Best International Act category. They face tough competition from Yank Punk's Green Day, among others. Finally, Bon Jovi released these days the title track of their latest multi-platinum album as a single on February the 12th. Green Day, Bon Jovi, Foo Fighters, Garbage and Alanis Morissette have all been nominated for Brit Awards. 
In the best international group category, Green Day, Bon Jovi, Foo Fighters and Garbage will compete against each other. Garbage and Foo Fighters are also both nominated for the Best International Newcomer Award, while Morissette will contest the Best International Female Solo Artist Award, and Trent Reznor's Natural Born Killers soundtrack is up for Best Soundtrack. The awards will be screened by ITV on February the 20th. A preview programme that Brits are coming will be shown on ITV at 8.30pm on February the 15th. For more on Green Day, turn to page 16. Type of negative frontman Pete Steele has revealed that the nude pictures he did for Playgirl magazine last year were a flop. It was the worst selling issue of Playgirl in 1995, moaned Steele. I've had no other offers since then. I'm still disappointed that Playgirl wouldn't let me dress up as a priest, which is what I wanted to do. They've got no sense of humour. The million selling gothic metal band are currently working on their third studio album, which is due through Roadrunner in the spring. It will include such tracks as Love You To Death, Die With Me and Haunted, which also appears on the soundtrack to the forthcoming vampire movie The Addiction. The band will begin a US tour with Ozzy Osbourne next month. Next week, your chance to name Typer Negative's new album. Pearl Jam guitarist Stone Gossard and Red Hot Chili Peppers duo Flea and Chad Smith have hooked up with a new band, Thermidor. The band were formed by ex-Rob Rule members uh, David King and Robbie Allen. The latter currently playing guitars and singing backing vocals on tour with the Chili Peppers. Robbie really got the whole thing together, reveals Chad Smith. He knew Stone and asked him to come along and jam. I've always wanted to play with Robbie as well. It's basically an open door policy with a band. Whoever's around and available at the time will play. Thermidor have been signed by Atlantic and will release their first album, Monkey on Rico, in the US on March the 12th. There's a possibility that an EP will be serviced to clubs in the UK to precede its UK release. Gossard, Flea and Smith play on six tracks on the album. Drummer Josh Freese replaces Smith on the remaining songs. At present, King, Alan and the ex-Mary's Danish Chris Wagner are the only full-time members of the band. Monkey on Rico was produced by King and will be released for Atlantic on its holiday records imprint. And Kerrang! can reveal that Thermidor are more of a rootsy US rock band with strong Tom Petty influences than grunge or funk. It's US rock music, Neil Youngish acoustic shit, says Smith. I'd like to see us doing some live dates after the Chilis have finished touring. Skunk and Nancy are facing a legal battle with fellow Brit rock band Cecil over their current single week. Cecil, who supported Skunk and Nancy in the UK last spring, have claimed that the song has been stolen from one of their own tunes, Fishers, and have instructed their lawyers to take action. However, a spokesman for Skunk and Nancy's publishers, Chrysalis, has dismissed the claim as utter nonsense. He told Kerrang, Out of the blue, we received a letter from Cecil's publishers very strongly suggesting that Week was an infringement of copyright on one of their songs. Our lawyers are currently dealing with this in the proper manner. We absolutely refute any part of this claim. We have studio booking sheets and other relevant documents to prove that Week was written and recorded in the autumn of 1994. A spokesman for Cecil's record company, Parlophone, said, It is true that Cecil's publishers have taken action with Skunk and Nancy over this matter. Cecil had hoped to keep this out of the public arena as they have taken the action reluctantly and wanted to resolve it privately. As such, although the action has now been made public, Cecil will let the lawyers and musicologists decide. Cecil's manager Dan Michelson added that he had asked Skunk and Nancy to provide taped evidence that Week had been written before the two bands toured together. They still haven't done so, he reveals. If they had, we would not have taken this course of action. 
Napalm Death have been forced to cancel their planned show at London's LA2 on January the 18th for which a special Money Off voucher appeared in last week's issue of Kerrang. The band pulled the gig when their US tour dates were brought forward, meaning they had to fly to the States on the day the LA2 show was scheduled to go ahead. The band wished to apologise to all Napalm fans for the cancellation. However, they wished to stress that they will still offer an exclusive Money Off voucher in Kerrang for their next London date, which will be part of a full UK tour later in the year. The band's date at Birmingham Foundry tonight will go ahead with all of last week's vouchers valid. Metallica and Soundgarden have been linked with build topping spots on this year's Lollapalooza tour. Although no official announcement has yet been made regarding the event which is scheduled to go ahead in June-July, both bands were the subject of the latest Lollapalooza rumours in the US. Porno for Pyrus, who are led by Lollapalooza's founder Perry Fowl, have also been heavily tipped to headline the 96th Trek. Metallica are now expected to release their new album in June, while Soundgarden's follow-up to Super Unknown is scheduled for September-October. In the UK, the Reading and Phoenix festivals have confirmed their dates for this year. Reading will run from August 23rd to 25th, while Phoenix will go ahead from July 18th to the 21st. American news. And this week, the order has been changed a little bit with who uh, reports in from where. So this week, we start with Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Bruno versus Tyson. Nah, there's a far more interesting and probably less predictable battle of the heavyweights scheduled to take place in America in February. The fight for the 1996 Grammy for Best Rock Album will see Pearl Jam's Vitology stepping into the ring with Neil Young and Pearl Jam's Mirrorball. A Vitology track, Spin the Black Circle, is also in the chase for hard rock performance. Seattle is once again very well represented in the nominations for this year's Grammys. Besides Pearl Jam, ex-Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl will also face off against himself, with Nirvana Unplugged and the Foo Fighters album both shortlisted for the alternative music performance, where they're up against the presidents of the USA, Alice in Chains have been nominated for their grind single. One of the city's daily newspapers, the Seattle Post-Intelligenza, was almost blasé in its reporting of the Grammy news, choosing to concentrate in its headline on the fact that female singers Mariah Carey and Alanis Morissette both received six nominations. Mind you, it could be argued that hearing that artists from the Northwest have been nominated for awards is old news and just isn't interesting anymore. It would, after all, be far more newsworthy to hear that they had actually finished a new album or were touring or something. We now join Don Kay in New York. The worst snowfall in New York's history fell on the rotten apple this week. Traffic, transportation, life itself ground to a halt and so did the music scene. A quick call around the record label offices revealed that they were all closed and the possibility of more snow later in the week also threatened the week's roster of shows. The Grammy Award nominations were announced just before the storm hit New York. The nominees for Best Metal Performance were Metallica, White Zombie, Megadeth, Nine Inch Nails and inexplicably Guar. The Hard Rock nominees featured Alice in Chains and Van Halen and the Best Rock Song category finds Page Plant and The Eagles up for Kashmir and Hotel California respectively, which means that two 20-year-old tunes were competing for an award in 1996. Mind, the Grammys are still thought of as more of a marketing scheme than a true celebration of music uh, to many observers. The 1996 Warp Tour starts on May 23rd in Phoenix, Arizona. Bad Religion, 311, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Jawbreaker and Social Distortion have all been confirmed to appear. 
The show is also set to feature all kinds of athletic punk rock activities like skateboarding and BMX riding. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. It is customary for bands to play practical jokes on one another during the last gig of a tour, especially when the bands bond. For example, at the end of the Lollapalooza 1993 tour, tall singer Maynard James Keenan masterminded a prank on Alice in Chains, while Lane Staley sang Yeah Here Comes the Rooster, several live chickens were set free on the stage, followed by someone in a chicken suit who danced around rubbing up uh, band members. The same night, two people had live sex, oral I believe, on stage while Primus played on. My point being, Machine Head and Chicago's rising heavyweights Wickerman must have bonded on their track. When Rob Flynn and co ended a 16-month tour at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, opening act Wickerman took the brunt of the ever-infectious end-of-tour madness. As they plunged into their last number, from out of nowhere, three Machine Head members surrounded the stage. Singer Rob Flynn took a spot in the front, centre of the crowd and sprayed Wickerman from all sides with an endless supply of silly string. Then Machine Head showered the stage with glitter. It was a truly beautiful sight. Can't say the stage manager felt the same. England has yet to learn of Wicker Man, an all-male quartet. They're reminiscent of early White Zombie with heavy bass riffs and searing guitars. They've got an album out on Hollywood Records, which should be out in the UK sometime this millennium. Watch out for new albums in 96 from these exciting LA groups. Possum Dixon, Star Maps, and Red 5, Red 5, both on Indoscope, and Dashboard Profits, debut on No Name Records, which was produced by G.G. Garth Richardson and the forthcoming Curb Dog and Jesus Lizard sets. Do you know where you are? All I know is when I was here and I was 17, I was in the middle of the fucking jungle, baby! We now go on location. This week, Paul Brannigan reports from the King's Call Finn Lizzy tribute in Dublin. On January the 4th, 1986, Phil Lynott, bassist and frontman with Irish rock band Finn Lizzy, died from a drug-related illness. Every year since then, close friends and associates have staged small tribute concerts to honour the man's legacy. This year, being the 10th anniversary of Lynott's death, the concert was upgraded to an 8,000 capacity venue. The fact that the Point Depot in Dublin is absolutely jam-packed with fans who have travelled from all over the world is testament to the enduring popularity of Ireland's favourite musical son. Def Leppard's Joe Elliott recalls a meeting with Lina in a Camden pub toilet in 1983 when the Irishman admitted that one reason he had split up his band was hearing the Lepp's Pyromania album and realising that Lizzie could no longer compete. This was a terribly sad compliment. While Finn Lizzie never enjoyed the huge commercial success of some of their contemporaries, their influence on modern rock music is immeasurable. Def Leppard and Iron Maiden stole their trademark harmony guitar sound. Bon Jovi have made a career out of reworking their tears and a boot-stained cowboy songs. Smashing Pumpkin, Billy Corgan calls Liner a genius songwriter with a heart of gold, and the man is a hero to bands like Therapy, Metallica, and Queensryche. One listen to the recently released Wild One compilation album will make you understand why. Fighter and Drinker, Chancer and Charmer, Lina quite literally electrified the Irish nation. Backstage, a scarily authentic lookalike glides around while people are swapping tales of their encounters with the real thing. It's like being at a very special Irish funeral wake. For reasons uh, which are various, two of Finn Lizzy's best-known ex-guitarists, Brian Robertson and Gary Moore, couldn't make the show. But for one night only, a lot of the boys are back in town, with former members Scott Gorham, Eric Bell, Darren Wharton, Brian Downey and John Sykes all gracing the stage. 
Phil's mother, Philomena, opened the main set, declaring the event one of the happiest and proudest nights of her life. John Sykes anchored the band for most of the evening, doing a fantastic job of recreating Linus' romantic, rasping vocal on classics such as Jailbreak, Black Rose and the epic self metal of Emerald. Grown men hugged tearfully as the band slid into Still In Love With You, practically the theme tune for the evening, and original guitarist Eric Bell sent the crowd into raptures with the electric folk hit Whiskey In The Jar. Rumours have been flying around Dublin all week as to which special guests would turn up for the show. In the end, there was no sign of Bono, Bob Gelnoff or John Bon Jovi, but we did get Joe Elliott, Henry Rollins and Andy Cairns and Michael McKeegan from Therapy. Michael was particularly excited about the prospect of playing and had brought his extensive collection of Lizzie albums and videos along to get autographs. Rollins performed a white-hot version of Are You Ready? Uh, Therapy did bad reputation and Joe Elliott took the mic for Suicide. Cowboy Song and the Immortal The Boys Are Back In Town. Great as these performances were, tonight was really all about one man. Phil Liner, rest in peace. We now come to this week's cover stars Green Day, the Beverly Hill Billies. Californian punks Green Day struck oil with their squillion selling dookie album. Now these three backwater scruff bags are millionaires. Main man Billy Joe Armstrong charts their rise with Murray Engelhart. They might be the biggest punk band on the planet, come on offspring, but Green Day's fairy tale, or so it would seem, has suddenly gone arse about tit. Their groundbreaking Dookie album, comically pronounced Ducky in Yorkshire, sold in excess of 7 million albums in the States. But last year's follow-up, Insomniac, has yet to be certified platinum, 1 million sales. Not that the record's stiff, but it appears that America has been reluctant to take a firm bite of the Green Day apple when it comes minus big juicy tunes like When I Come Around or Welcome to Paradise. But Green Day, free spitting sawdust scruff bags from Berkeley, California don't give a shit. Quite possibly frontman Billy Joe Armstrong, drummer Trey Cole and bassist Mike Dern are relieved the things have eased off a little. Let's face it, they've made their fortune, the real fans will be there forever and they still don't have to do many interviews. Except this one. Billy Joe Armstrong is a cool frontman, whatever colour his hair is. Red, green, blue, pink or purple. He's the close-cropped, chip-toothed leader of the punk revolution. He snarls, he swears, he pulls funny faces and he's actually quite a nice bloke. Yet for all his snot-nosed, po-faced punkiness, he reckons that spitting doesn't necessarily come with the territory. No, he laughs. Absolutely not. But you've been on the receiving end. Well, I've been on the giving end and the receiving end, he admits, but no... I slobber on myself, it's good to slobber on yourself, that's okay, because it's your own spit, but getting hepatitis is not fine. Billy Joe made a very public exception to that rule during last year's MTV Music Video Awards, which was beamed across the world to an audience of millions. Just before Green Day launched themselves into what turned out to be a rather horrible land of white noise, Billy Joe made a hurried request for the audience to target a particular photographer with their saliva. Yeah, I spat on a photographer, he owns up. What did he do? He was filming me, says Armstrong flatly. He was just a dork and kind of overstepping his boundaries on my privacy. So, he chuckles, I let him have it. But Billy Joe does wear his position as punk prince rather well. He could, and by rights, should be the biggest asshole in the business. Only he's not. Quite the opposite. The guy seems no different to the average person you'd sit next to on the bus. But of course... None of the people you find on the number 39 home front the biggest selling punk rock band in history. 
It was quite obvious when the band moved a million copies of Dookie within a few months of its release that the threesome were in the right place at the right time. But there was life but BD before Dookie. Billy Joe calculates Green Day's first gig to have been as far back as October 1988 at a war vet's hall in Davis, California with a band called The Crimshine, but that must seem like a dream now. And at the time, the idea of one day being arrested for indecent exposure must have seemed more than a little surreal. It happened in Milwaukee, says Billy Joe of his recent brush with the law. They got me on disorderly conduct. I mooned the audience. It happened so fast, I don't even remember it to tell you the truth. I think I dropped a pick or something, but I got thrown in jail for a few hours. That was it. Chances are that punk veteran Joey Ramone never had those sort of experiences, but then the Ramones, as fate would harshly have it, never got to do a lot of the things that Green Day have done. A Ramones guitar plectrum has hung around Billy Joe's neck for the last five years. He found it on the floor after Green Day had played in Cape Cod and put it on. But right now, Billy Joe, the father, just wants to go home. I think it's time for me to let my son be in a familiar atmosphere, you know, and just hang out. One place Billy Joe no longer hangs out is the band's old club haunt, the Gilman Street Project, where ex-Dead Kennedy star, now alternative tentacles head honjo Jello Biafra got a good hiding a few years back. Billy Joe is quick to defend the place. You know, he shrugs, Jello got jumped by a couple of people, which had nothing to do with a club. It could have been anywhere, really. In a recent interview, Biafra was more than supportive of the Green Day cause. Biafra said that he hoped Green Day would recycle the fruits of their success for social good. Well, I've done that, says Billy Joe. I opened a studio and basically people came in for free. We donated a whole shitload of money to an organisation called Food Not Bombs and the Homeless Coalition. Stuff like that, which is basically like a punk rock free-for-all. Food and stuff like that. I think I'm into the community in general. There's still people who are homeless that have nothing to do with punk whatsoever. I don't think they should have to have anything to do with punk for me to give something back. Billy Joe isn't quite so humble when Kerrang raises the subject of rumours about the artwork for the Insomniac album. He doesn't see the funny side in stories suggesting that the two people depicted on the cover, a blonde woman and a man holding a gun, were supposed to be Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain. It's bullshit, he spits. I don't know where that information came from, but that's totally bullshit. I don't know where people fucking get that shit from. And if you fucking believe it, you're a bigger moron than I thought. He calms down. It's just stupid. I don't understand where people's mentalities come from. Like, oh yeah, I'd really be that fucking tacky. People just have wild imaginations. And they should fucking make them go in a different direction than thinking whatever their fucking tabloid brain has been conditioned to think. Green Day are often considered to be on the lighter side of punk. But on Insomniac, the subject matter is both deep and dark. Is that the great misconception about Green Day? That you're all fun-loving, happy guys? Oh yeah, every second of the day he sighs before breaking out in his inimitable chuckle. No, it's like I write songs but playing live is a completely different thing. It's like we're going to go up and we're going to have fun when we play, but I'm not going to be this fucking melodramatic smashing pumpkins moron. Oh come on. Well it's true. I'm not going to go up there and whine. I'd rather fucking whine in the lyrics of my songs and if people get that, then that's fine. But you must feel more emotionally stable than you were five years ago. Emotionally? Why is that? Your family situation? Well, see, it's nice to have family, but there's a certain amount of stress that's involved in that too. It's just the little everyday things, not so much the big picture. The big picture looks pretty good. That's what I try to bring across in my songs, though you have to make some sort of sense out of it then it's trying to have some sort of optimistic outlook. What did you do with your first major royalty check? What did I do with it? I don't know, I think it's still sitting there. No Maserati? 
Nah, I've been driving the same car for the past four years, a 1962 Ford Fairlane. You've been getting press in the last few months about what party animals you are, speed and alcohol etc, but the song Geek Stink Breath is anti-speed, isn't it? Um, well, it's kind of a state of mind, it's not for it, it's not against it, I wouldn't call myself a drug freak or anything, I'd just rather play music. So you've got no songs like Motorhead that were written about speed or on speed. Yeah, I've got a few songs like that, but I won't tell you which ones. A little known Billy Joe fact is that he spent some of his pre-teen years in a couple of dodgy trad metal bands. Oh yeah, he laughs embarrassed. Any names? Yeah, I was in one band called Blood Rage. He starts to elaborate but trails off, obviously keen to keep this little skeleton in the closet. But let's talk about right now. The fame, the adoration, the bullshit. Has Billy Joe found that relatives he didn't even know existed have suddenly come from out of nowhere? Uh, yeah, there's some strange people that kind of come out of the woodwork and claim to be your best friend once in a while. When times are tight? Well, not when times are tight. I think it's more when they want to show you off to their buddies. I don't have any regard for that shit. You have a big family, lots of brothers and sisters. They're all cool. I like them. We get along well. Have they ever been approached for interviews because of their connections? Yeah, they have. But we sat around and had this agreement where everybody agreed to keep their mouth shut. And it worked, there's been nothing too smearing in the press about you. Yeah, I don't think there has been, unless you want to make something up. You've been pretty lucky. Well, we keep our noses clean. We're a rock and roll band. Image has nothing to do with it, and we like to keep it that way. We don't go around telling people about our personal lives, Billy Joe concludes. We put out music, and that's 100% what we're about. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Lives, and the first concert review this week is White Zombie, supported by Space Hog, at the Roseland, New York, on Friday, December the 15th. This one is reviewed by Don K, and he gives this 4 out of 5. This wasn't really what you'd call a White Zombie concert proper. It was, in fact, local hard rock radio station Q1043's second birthday bash. But judging from the audience reaction to some of the other bands who appeared tonight, you would have thought said acts were saying rosaries instead of playing rock music. When White Zombie hit the stage, however, the moribund gathering of pre-programmed suburban kids who only know what they see on MTV and nothing else roared like crazy. Space Hog, the new darlings of the alternative rock scene, played their hearts out to a comatose response. With a bit of Bowie, a bit of Mott the Hoople, some strong songs and a lot of charisma, Space Hog carried on in good form even when they lost the lights and started getting on-stage electrical shocks. They never lost their glamorous poise. By the time White Zombie came on, the crowd was really ready to go. Bereft of their usual massive stage show, White Zombie still pulled off their over-the-top barrage of speed-injected Sabbath riffs and trash culture meltdown. Even when Rob's voice abandoned him, he was apparently suffering from end-of-tour burnout, the band never let him down, pumping up the tunes and covering for the frontman's disability. A rapid-fire succession of hits, Supercharger, More Human Than Human, Electric Head Part 2, Welcome to Planet Motherfucker, and of course, Thunder Kiss 65, and they were gone. But White Zombie more than did their job, and literally managed to raise the dead. The next review is for Baby Chaos, supported by Angel Cage and Three Colours Red. This concert took place at the King's Cross Splash Club London on Thursday, December the 14th. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, he gives this one 4 out of 5. There seems to be a big buzz on Three Colours Red at the moment. Certainly there's no shortage of musicians, journalists and record industry types crammed in here tonight to see the hotly tipped quartet. And all the rumours appear to be well justified. It's a standard concept. 
angelically bruising harmony vocals, tripping over well scrubbed cocky guitars, but the band do it so well that you can't find fault. Their dress sense is another story, but that's just being picky. This Is My Hollywood soars effortlessly over a spiky guitar rampage. Newy covergirl preens and pirouettes around the thumping beat and Annecy rubs you up uh, all the right ways while I cover the Beatles Please Please Me is fun, friendly and moptastic. Go see. The Splash Club's plush velvet decor is the ideal setting for Angel Cage. But it's not all just cheekbones and shiny dresses up there. They sound bloody fine too. The songs are sharp and tetchy, fuzzed up and pissed off, like all great songs should be. There's an underlying malevolence to the likes of Princess Die with its snarling catty vocals and touchy feeling, which piles on the crude sandpaper caresses. Weatherman is shouty and sussed, a fingernails on the blackboard screech with jaunty good-for-nothing guitar jabs. There's a CD titled Sophic Magic out there somewhere. Tracking it down would surely be a good thing. Quite how Baby Chaos acquired a reputation as shoegazing indie types is a mystery because tonight they rock magnificently. The Scottish Quartet got rather swallowed up in the recent race to find Brett Rock's next big thing, but they've certainly got the songwriting class to re-emerge as shining stars for 96. The band have a neat and nasty line in song titles, confessions of a teenage pervert and the sensual art of suffocation being personal faves, and the tunes themselves are every bit as wonderful, oozing, brash melodies and guitars which are just spoiling for a good scrap. Frontman Chris Gordon is low-key but endearing, spitting out honeyed harmonies on Sliver and Go To Hell as the guitar riffs wrap themselves around your head for fun. Golden Tooth crashes in on adrenaline waves and superpowered is everything the title suggests and more. Debut single Sperm, a potent reminder of why you should class this band to your racing heart is still a fantastic, uncontrollable spur of pure joy. Let them wreck your soul in 96. Next up, we have Henry Rollins live at the Kentish Town Forum, London on Friday, January the 5th. Reviewed by Phil Alexander, this one gets 4 out of 5. Henry Rollins likes to work, possibly more than he likes to work out. He's in London on the Whistle Stop visit, having just played the Phil Lynott tribute gig in Dublin, and he's managed to slip in this spoken word show. Tonight, Henry is on particularly good form and elects to jabber for 3 hours. He comes on like a Vietnam vet, spinning stories about being scarred in the rock wars. His occasional chortle, ha ha ha, is akin to Beavis and Butthead. He is, however, hugely entertaining, reveling in the sheer art of storytelling. You get to hear about how he took the piss and terrorised the Grammy Awards. He also won a Grammy for his spoken word tour, which coincided with his Get In The Van book. Next up, he's hanging out with producer Rick Rubin and ex-Clash man Joe Strummer at country star Johnny Cash's LA show. Then he's getting slugged in the face by fabled actor Robert De Niro on a film set, while being asked to appear in David Twin Peaks Lynch's next celluloid slice of strangeness. It's an avalanche of celebrity anecdotes, all delivered with a sharp, self-deprecating sense of humour. Elsewhere, Rollins addresses suggestions that he may be gay. In the US, he was gay for eight months, according to the media. His publicist viewed it as a sign of his frame. Hetero Henry wasn't too sure. You can almost hear a pin drop when he tells a story about meeting a hospital-bound 17-year-old fan with leukemia in Australia. And conversely, he manages to make you cringe when he elects to read some introspective written pieces of work. He rounds off the evening by revealing his plot to have AOR croon and Michael Bolton's vocal cords removed, thereby altering the course of modern history. Is a heartwarming thought that sends everyone home happy. The next review this week is for Corn. Supported by Life of Agony at the Summit Houston on Sunday, January the 7th. Reviewed by Chris Smith, this gets 3 out of 5. 
A disco version of Beethoven's Fifth is kicking through the PA as Mina Caputo and the rest of Life of Agony take the stage as the first of two opening acts on Ozzy Osbourne's North American tour. Its strains are still bouncing around the hall two songs into LOA's set. Damned If I Do is third in and helps the cause considerably possessing an integrated music thread. Caputo's operatic vocals are an acquired taste, but when working against a cohesive backdrop such as on this number and the next song I Pretend, they can propel the material to epic heights. Tossing Joey Z's guitar hero style solo on the latter and you've got perfect arena rock material. But too many of the songs still sound like riffs just patched together and the band projected decidedly anti-star image. Bass player Alan Robert is actually its creative force but Mr Z plays the frontman from his guitar position and Caputo only opens their mouth to sing. At the same time, they are extremely tight and more than capable of filling the space when they hit the right groove. Korn gained arena experience opening for Megadeth over the summer and continued to hone themselves into an outfit of world-class force. The whisper to a scream ebbs and flows are in place, but this show seems a little shrill and frantic. Some of the darkness and menace of earlier performances not quite present. There are certain exceptions. Clown moves from a bloody gargle to a clotted scream, helped in no small measure by a particularly driven Jonathan Davis and Brian's ferocious backing vocals. Jay Monkey Chevron guitar and bassist Fieldy are bobbing, ducking, spinning as if pitchforks are poking at their heels, while David keeps the me mechanistic drumming online. Blind is another moment of strength, even as the crowd starts chanting Aussie and the band do themselves enormous credit by feeding on the cheers for the headliner. And just as you think it's about to end, turning in wide-eyed mindfucks of both Bulltongue and Faggot. Impressive, but not quite triumphant. And the last concert review this week is Rocket from the Crypt at the Highbury Garage London, Saturday, January the 6th. Reviewed by Paul Rees, he gives this one 5 out of 5. You are about to witness the best punk rock show you'll ever see, says the man who looks like Andy Cairns' dad. Oh, your money back at the door. In a logical world, this announcement would send three quarters of the 500 people who have packed the garage hurtling towards the box office with their wallets open. While the stragglers kindly offered to direct the obviously deluded gentleman on stage to the nearest reputable mental institution. Except Speedo, the man at the mic with a faltering quiff and established paunch, and his rocket from the crypt do not inhabit a logical, ordered world. Otherwise, they would not wear matching black satin rhinestone shirts and they would not be the best punk rock band you've ever seen. Thankfully, they do, and they are. And seconds after Speedo has made his announcement, they play one of the most exciting and revelatory gigs anyone here can recall for a very long time indeed. It helps that in virtually every Rocket from the Crypt song, there are at least three official great rock and roll moments. The bit when Speedo, fellow guitarist Endy and bassist P.E.X. do their formation lurching forward and spazzing out at the start of every song. The bit when JC 2000's trumpet and Apollo 9's saxophone begin honking gleefully over Speedo's cancerous bark and the supercharged grooves. And the bit when a bloke no one knows in Aviator Shade starts dancing like an epileptic to the right of the stage and he and everyone else in the band sing alarmingly melodic backing vocals. It doesn't hurt that Rocket from the Crypt songs all appear to have malign dangerous doses of speed and adrenaline seconds before starting, whether it be the Semtex soul of Don't Darlene, the scorched R&B of On A Rope, the hilariously affected stacks of My Arrow Aim, or the full-on punk fury of the uniformly marvellous Like Me, Lorna Doom and Killy Kill. Throwing psychotic maracas, an outrageous guitar war and six pairs of hugely hip footwear, and you're left with the first ever UK show that will become the stuff of legend. 
see Rocket from the Crypt and forget that Green Day, Offspring and any other band you care to mention exist for the next hour. Burn My Eyes Sepultura are back with a blinding new album. But what's all this bollocks about recording in the jungle? Paul Brannigan pops on his loincloth and investigates. This is truly fucking hostile. A monstrous throb of evil. Guitars swarming like killer bees. Bass mercilessly punching the pit of your stomach. Drums rattling your skull. A distorted voice screams repeatedly, open up your mind and blow you away. Brutal. Relentless. Awesome. Sepultura's Max Cavalera walks quietly over to the DAP machine, presses the stop button and looks around with a confident smile. Pretty good, eh? Max, his drummer brother Igor and myself are sitting in a small room in Roadrunner Records' New York office listening to Breed Apart, one of the advanced mixes from Sepultura's stunning new album. Roots is the long-awaited sixth album from the boys from Brazil, the follow-up to 1993's Mighty Chaos AD and quite simply the most intense, ferocious set of tunes ever recorded by the band, completed by guitarist Andreas Kisser and bassist Paolo Jr. No wonder the brothers Cavalera are looking pleased. It's been three years since Chaos, so we wanted to give our fans a lot, Max explains. This is the fullest record we've ever made, incorporating all the crazy ideas. This time, there wasn't the same pressure on the recording. The label trusts us, so they didn't hurry or hassle us. The set spent two months at Indigo Ranch Studios in California recording roots with producer Ross Robinson, who also cut the brilliant debut album by new post-industrial noise heroes Korn. Robinson has done a fantastic job capturing the band at their viciously powerful peak. Roots sounds tremendous. Every drum beat a snapping spine. Every riff gnawing like a pit bull. It's a raw, bitter record, sleek and mechanised yet intensely human. The band pouring heart, soul and guts into every primal groove. The songs already mixed are a revelation. Down-tuned, merciless hunks of muscle throbbing with anger and hate. Spit is more hardcore than metal, devoid of lead guitar, but boasting a seething, live your life, leave me alone chorus. Attitude builds from a sparse metallic scraping intro into a feverish full-on guitar battery. Max roaring, you're full of ship as huge shifting rhythms judder against sheet metal riffing. Straight hate surges and pounds, guitars climbing the walls like frenzied laboratory rats. Endangered Species is epic, fantastically powerful and percussive, snarling dirty waves of rhythm crashing upon bleak vocal sentiments. Are we going to see another day? Are we going to make it to the end? Sepultura's increasing musical sophistication and maturity certainly haven't blunted their cutting-edge savagery. As much as we change year by year, once you put the four of us in a room to play, it's the same as fucking ten years ago, Igor states. The same energy, rage and power. Ross has done a lot of really good demos, which we'd heard, and we knew he'd get great results. Andy Wallace, producer of Chaos AD, is an incredible engineer, but he's more into uh, taking what the band has to offer, whereas Ross always pushed and wanted more which was really good for us. He brought a lot of ideas to the record. Some of them were great, some sucked, but he was always trying. You could say, I don't want to play drums now. I want to go into the kitchen and play a beat on the refrigerator. And Ross would say, fuck, let's go. He was totally up for all our experiments, which was brilliant. Max nods enthusiastically. He was just like us. He understands that there are no limits to what you can do with music. Breaking barriers has always been what Sepultura is about doing what everybody tells you you can't do, like a little pissed off rebel kid troublemaker. I hope the time never comes when there are no more barriers to break. Some people get stale and tired with music, but we'll never have that attitude, Max continues. 
When we were recording with the Zavante tribe, we had people who were 80 years old participating with us, stomping and singing along. 80 fucking years old and still keen to experiment and try out new shit. That was really inspiring. Sepultura's collaboration with the Zavante Indian tribe from Northern Brazil has attracted worldwide media attention. Recording the song It's Sari, a reworking of a 500-year-old tribal healing ritual, was a deeply spiritual experience for the band. We wanted to make some connection with our Brazilian roots without being really corny or trendy, Max reveals. The idea really formed when we did Kayavas on Chaos AD. We wanted to take the concept to a new level and we figured that the only way we could top Kayavas would be to actually go to the jungle and record with a tribe. No one knew whether we could actually get something together, so when it all came off, it was amazing. The tribes in Brazil can be very suspicious because there is a lot of political tension with white people trying to fuck with them all the time, but the Javantes were really open to the experience. The jungle recording experience must have been really surreal. We had no idea what to expect, Max admits. We flew in on those little aeroplanes that only hold four people, those scary ones that crash all the time. And after two hours, we landed on a dirt road in the middle of the jungle. The whole tribe was ready to receive us there. The first thing we did was to go and meet the big chiefs of the tribe, just like in the movies. Igor. It was cool because somehow the tribe could relate to us. Most other people who had gone there went to study them, like they were freaks. But when we walked in, all tattoos and long hair, they were like, cool. Max, they wanted to hear a real Sepultura song with guitars and everything, but obviously we couldn't do that without electricity. But after we did some recordings with them, we played Kayavas for them, because they had been showing us so much of their music. We played the song once and they started talking in their language. We asked the translator what they were saying and he said, they're asking for more, they really liked it. It was the weirdest Sepultura gig we've ever done, us playing in the centre of a hundred Indians. But it was really spiritual. We played again and I threw a bunch of screams over the top making it really intense. We read an interview later from the tribe chief and he said that when he heard that song he could tell it was genuine and written from the heart. That was one of the best compliments ever. Did the fact that there is so much uh, experimentation on this album cause any feuds when it came to recording the songs? There'd be a few arguments but nothing major Max stresses. Sebel Tourette is like a family and if we don't fight then we're not alive. We're just faking it. Sometimes fights can get pretty ugly, but that's the way it has to be. Otherwise, it's like nobody gives a shit. Including Indian tribal music and African-Brazilian roots music on this album reflects upon the roots of our culture. But songs like Spit, which go back to the roots of our early albums, are equally important. That song has such a punk rock soul, and that's as much a part of who we are as any traditional music. Brother Igor has the final word. We're so pleased with this record, and we can't wait till people get the chance to hear it. Studio stuff can take a long time, but you know that you have to do all the boring stuff to get the end result. It's like doing a painting. Every brushstroke isn't fun, but you have the finished piece in your mind at all times. This is as close as we've come to creating our masterpiece. Feedback and the letter of the week this week begins. I have just returned to England having witnessed one of the greatest events that I have seen. Vibe for Philo was the 10th celebration of the life and music of Phil lineup and what a life. There was everything from videos, poets, unknown to me, bands and big names, all performing the songs and poetry of this genius. The grand finale was a superb reunion of Lizzie themselves, Brian Downey, Scott Gorham and Darren Wharton with John Sykes handling the vocals and a great job he did. They played through all the songs you could wish to hear. Even Majeur showed up and played on Rosalie. 
But the greatest moment of the day, the appearance of Philomena lineup Phil's mother. Wow, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house when she came on. It was also good to know that his daughters, Kathleen and Sarah, were also there. It was just a shame the family couldn't have been completed by the man himself. Philip Lynott is greatly missed, but his memory will live on forever. Simon Cook, Enderby. Congratulations for embracing the changing face of metal and for helping to keep the scene fresh throughout the past year. By focusing on bands as diverse as Ash, Life of Agony and The Prodigy, the staff at Kerrang are ensuring that the metal scene is becoming more credible and even more interesting than ever. With the music charts becoming more guitar based, I believe that harder bands such as Fear Factory and The Wild Hearts will soon gain a larger and more diverse audience. This will happen as soon as people realise that metal bands are as mature and exciting as any of the bands presently hogging the limelight. Thus, I believe that 96 will be the year during which metal gains mass appeal and worldwide credibility. So here's to even more diversity in 96 and how about this for a Donington 96 bill. Main stage. Sepultura, The Prodigy, Paradise Lost, The Wild Hearts, Terrorvision, Anthrax, Skunkadancy. Second stage. Doggy Dog, Fear Factory, Bad Religion, Life of Agony, Corn Sensor. Richard Midlands. Here are my five choices for the LPs of 95, the ones that got away. Nola, Down. Heavy, intense and drenched in beer and strong liquor. The best metal album in eons. Scream, Dracula, Scream. Rocket from the Crypt, cool as fuck. They've got two guitarists, one bass player, a drummer and a horn section to boot. I'm in heaven. Ugly, Life of Agony. An album that will grab your attention first time around. Brutally heavy, but at the same time, unashamedly melodic. Seamless, Into Another. Along with Civ, Dog Eat Dog and Quicksand, Into Another have introduced a breath of fresh air into the hardcore scene. Check them out in 96 and watch them explode. Death to Traitors Poor. The champion boozers from Kansas have come good yet again with an LP full of great songs, loud, proud and drunk. Philip Steverton, Stafford. I wrote to Scottish TV about them cancelling Noisy Mothers and got a reply from them, in which they said it was unlikely the show would return because the ITV Nighttime Committee had updated the programmes for 1996 and Noisy Mothers wasn't included in this. It's criminal. They then seemed to make an attempt to console me by stating they were planning to transmit one-off concerts by Oasis Blur and Paul Weller. Excuse me, do we really want to be subjected to Blur, Oasis and Paul Weller? We already get too much take that on the television without adding it by showing us these bands. How about some white, uh, zombie, wild hearts or television concerts? Is it just me or are rock fans being severely discriminated against? TV programmes are being cancelled as our radio shows and magazines are turning their backs on us. I think rock fans across the country should unite and fight for equal rights. Fiona Johnston, Livingston. Gagging for a shagging. Please put Mark Hamilton of Ash in gagging for a shagging. Fwoar. Then I can dribble over him until the page goes all soggy and it is no longer readable. Catherine Dundee. Now it's gone too far. This sad bunch of teeth and trainers known as Dog Eat Dog and nothing more than the Brady Bunch with guitars. And thanks to Empty TV, they've had their crap album All Borough Kings ran down the kids' throats twice in 18 months. Now, the saucy fuckers even have the balls to re-release the same LP with a bonus track, which is a remix of a single twice itself re-released. Dog Eat Shit. Mixie Wood, Her Majesty's Prison, Wandsworth. After reading issue 577's High Lows and Courtney Love uh, feature on 1995, I was disgusted. Throughout the whole magazine, all you did was insult Courtney. I thought the Kerrang was a fair mag. I was obviously wrong. Why Violet? London. Mike Brain. Apes, pigs and spacemen aren't bollocks. But you're Welsh, therefore you don't know better. Twat. Mystic M.
Ill communication. The only way is up. Siva the next big thing. That's the word on the street. Paul Brannigan meets the new kings of New York hardcore cool as they prepare to crack the UK. Siv the man from Siv the band scratches his shaven head and ponders the events of the last 12 months. I just feel like I've been living in a bubble. People talk about events and I'm like, oh really? They can tell me anything. OJ's been sent to the electric chair. The president's had a sex change and it could be true. We're in our own weird little world all the time. In 1996, thousands more people are going to seek access to Siv's weird little world. The New York band were just about the most exciting new act thrown up in 1995. All sharp suits, sharper tunes and frenetic youthful energy. Siv's debut album Set Your Goals oozed hardcore class and credibility, blistering melodies and unceasingly bouncy riffs. A stunning show at London's Camden Underworld in November had hardened punk aficionados weeping into their cider with sheer joy. Right now, the world and his cousin Bob are hurling next big thing predictions at the quartet and the boys themselves, vocalist Siv, guitarist Charlie, bassist Arthur and drummer Sammy are totally unfazed by the mountain hysteria. After all, Siv, as in Siv, trivia fans, were getting this sort of reaction before they'd even played a gig. We started getting ridiculous offers from record companies who hadn't heard a single note of our music recalls the ever smiling Charlie. There was a huge buzz on the band because Green Day were the biggest thing and there was a feeding frenzy for bands who were considered even vaguely similar. Having been in bands before, it was funny to suddenly be so desirable. Part of Siv's appeal to the checkbook wielding record execs was their top notch hardcore pedigree. All four band members have been respected players on the New York scene for years, most notably with hardcore heroes Gorilla Biscuits, the band which also spawned Quicksand. Atlantic Records won the race for Siv's much coveted signatures after label A&R man Mike Gitter, an ex-Karang scribe and longtime friend of the band, picked up on an unusual demo tape. A self-funded video for the song Can't Wait One Minute More. When MTV picked up on the witty chat show parody of Can't Wait One Minute More, Siv became one of the most talked about US bands in recent years. The band consolidated their burgeoning reputation with live dates alongside L7, Sick of It All and Orange 9mm on last summer's stateside walk tour, where Siv rocked. Man, we were smoking, says Sammy with mock seriousness. The walk tour was incredible. It had a real independent spirit, kind of like Lollapalooza in its first year. A punk rock summer camp. As mainstream America began to embrace the band, did they start getting flack from punker than now kids about selling out their underground roots? Charlie shrugs resignedly. A lot of that stigma disappeared after Quicksand, Helmet and Sick of It All signed to majors, but you still get some hassle from people who come to shows feeling hurt, as if we've let them down personally. They just don't understand the business. Eventually, they'll come to terms with it. They haven't driven around in dirty ass vans for seven years, adds Siv. Doing 500 mile drives to play shows, being on a major makes things easier. When you're on the road without any support, things can fuck up big time. When I roadied for you for today, four of us had to work in a junkyard in order to get the money to put on the next show. But even those bad memories are cool. Being pulled over by some dumbass southern cop and made to stand in the burning heat for hours while they pulled your van apart was never much fun, Charlie agrees. But now you can look back and laugh. Does the band also laugh at the hardcore with an adamant backbeat label which has been given to their sound? That's totally true of some of the tunes because I'm a huge Adam and the Ants fan, Sammy reveals. And when we were writing those songs, I knew there was that influence. Adamant rocked. Adamant aside, Set Your Goals also takes in elements of ska, rockabilly and metal. It even features a world first acoustic hardcore on the track Don't Got To Prove It. 
That's part of what is making hardcore cool, Arthur explains. There aren't as many rules. You don't have to stick to the old formulas anymore. The New York scene is a lot less clicky now, with bands like Shelter, Dog Eat Dog and us all doing our own thing. Hardcore isn't just for misfit kids now, Sammy laughs. Yeah, sometimes it's a little bit weird seeing these secretaries and regular college guys at shows, says Siv, and you just wonder whether they get the attitude, but we don't mind at all. This laid-back attitude and Siv's own straight-edge beliefs are reflected in the band's upbeat, positive lyrics. Well, we're not into fantasy, but there's no need to whinge on about how crap everything is all the time, says Charlie. We have a forum where a lot of people listen to us, and I think it's important not to abuse that power, Siv explains. We just want to do the right thing by not relaying any negative messages. Will the band continue to set off this lyrical responsibility with their trademark, suave, sophisticated dress style? With the suits, we originally wanted that cool 50s band feel, admits Charlie, but they've kind of been phased out. We know what the British press guys are like. We'd have been lumped in alongside Hagfish in some new wave of new suit scene. And Siv's plans for 1996? To sell out as much as we can. The posters in this week's Kerrang! are of a Bon Jovi poster special. Bore off Bon Jovi, I'm quite sick of seeing his face all over Kerrang! Let's move on to singles. The singles this week are reviewed by Morat. The first single reviewed is Meatloaf with his single uh, Not A Dry Eye In The House. This gets 1k. Look out, Fatty's back with another epic ballad. You know the formula by now. Crap song, stupid video where fat bloke gets off with saucy model, followed by six weeks of turning the chart show off early because it's still at number one. <laughs> Presumably, there's not a dry eye in the house because Meatloaf has scoffed all the food again. Farside with their single 122491. This gets 2Ks. A horrible selection of songs that nods at a cross between Elvis Costello and Paul, but still ends up feeling like one of those 80s new wave bands like the Jags or the Vapors. There's really no need for that at all. Dub War with their single Enemy Maker. This gets 4Ks. Dub War take a respectful nod at the police, Geordie band led by Sting, not the burly blokes who want you to empty your pockets all the time with Enemy Maker, but it's the beautiful ballad silencer that is the real stunner here. The image of frontman Benji putting his soul into this is somehow strangely heartwarming. Make sure you get the version with that track CD2 and give them hell if they don't play it live on the forthcoming tour. Cause for Alarm, Warzone. Um, the title of this is Beyond Birth and Death, Punk, Rock, Oi, Hardcore and You, Black and Blue, Still True. This gets 3Ks. Fairly standard hardcore punk fodder from two of New York's longest standing bands. Like most other material from these bands, it's well listenable, but you wouldn't go out and buy it. Nondescript production doesn't do Warzone any favours, but then their lyrics don't help much either. I Wanna Be A Hippie by Technohead. This gets 4Ks. Brilliant headbanging techno from these Dutch loonies. Before you start moaning on about me giving it 4Ks, take into consideration that techno or not, aside from some mediocre hardcore, this is the heaviest, fastest single this week. It's also the tune that saw Furious slamming at the Fear Factory Astoria gig when I played it, album mixed. It's got no chance of getting on the radio because they harp on about marijuana all the way through it, so I love it to death. Dog Eat Dog, with their single No Fronts the Remixes. Yes, oh sorry, this gets 3Ks. Yes, 
Dog eat dog, they can do power calls. Actually, this is a bunch of unimaginative remixes of Dog eat dog's one true classic tune, and as such, just seems to include a touch more hip hop and some extra saxophone. The original is better, so why piss about with it? The single of the week this week comes from Skunk Nancy with their single week. Morak gives this 5Ks. An awesome offering from Skunk Nancy. You've already heard much of this stuff if you're sensible enough to have bought the album, but these acoustic versions of various tunes are well worth checking out. And of course, Week is an absolute classic. And speaking of Skunk Nancy, we now come to a piece entitled Sitting Pretty. Led by outrageous singer Skin, Skunk and Nancy are set to ride the crest of the Brit rock wave and achieve big things in 1996. But did the band really start off by conning money out of the dole office? Skin confesses all to Paul Elliott. Bald, black and flagrantly bisexual. Not a typical description of a rock star, but Skin, frontwoman for Skunk and Nancy, is Brit rock's most striking figure. A year ago, Skunk and Nancy were this weird little band that nobody could really get a handle on. This was raging agit rock, rooted in punk, but Skin could also sing it like a real old raw soul screamer. It was all a bit left of centre, but it made sense to a lot of people. By the end of 95, Skunk and Nancy had scored three hit singles, they'd appeared on Top of the Pops and had succeeded Terrorvision as Best New British Band at the Kerrang Awards. Skin meets Kerrang in a gay bar in London, Soho on a busy Friday night to reflect on the rocket-fueled rise of Skunk and Nancy. Are you surprised that it's all happened so quickly for Skunk and Nancy? Well, in some ways it could have happened a lot quicker, because we're one of those bands who had it all there from the very first gig. What I'm surprised about is the amount of people who see the band the way we do. For us it was really obvious that we were really good. I thought it'd be a slower thing, yet in some ways it's not quick enough. We're so ready to go to the next level. When a band suddenly explodes from nowhere and becomes huge, that band usually starts a whole new scene, mainly because they had a completely original style. Like Nirvana, they were completely different and they became huge because they had this great pop song. Everybody started copying Nirvana and they still are. The amount of bands that are still trying to write Smells Like Teen Spirit, the list could go on forever. Our theory is to be very original because the bands we really like have been different. They weren't following a scene. Individuality pushes barriers. Now you've done so many press interviews, the people think uh, they know you before they meet you. Yes, but I think that's typical of any band whose singer gets a lot of press. I just try to control it as much as I can. People expect me to be really aggressive and rude, to swear a lot. I think they expect me to be quite ignorant and completely angry. I did one interview and the guy just said, I'm really disappointed. I expected you to be really aggressive. I haven't got any violent quotes. I said, if you want me to behave like a wanker, it's very easy, but I don't think either of us would get much pleasure out of that. People just expect directionless anger. Even though the anger on the record is so well directed, yeah, it's positive anger, not inane aggression, which doesn't solve anything. I was aggressive for a long time in my life and I've turned my mentality around because it wasn't doing me any favours. Okay, I may be an angry person, but I'm not going to get in your face about it, like it's your problem. You're 28 now. What did you do before Skunk and Nancy? I was an interior designer. I was at university for ages. Then I was a designer for a couple of years. Eventually, I just had enough of being a 9 to 5 person, which was really difficult for me, so I just left. I bumped into a girl who wanted to manage me and a guy who wanted to write songs, and that's how the whole thing started. We had this little four track in our living room. We used our doll money and housing benefit to survive. We had all these scams going. I probably shouldn't tell you, because I'll get done for it. I could sing. 
but I didn't know how to write uh, songs, but I wasn't the kind of person who could just stand behind the mic and look pretty. The only way to do things is to have power over what you're singing. Write your own songs and you can do whatever the fuck you want. I've written songs since the age of 13, but they weren't really songs, they were more like poetry. Did you shave your head when you were still a designer? I started with really long hair and it got shorter. When I shaved it off, uh, they found that hard to deal with. I was always seen as this weird person. I never really got on with anybody else. Did you ever doubt that you could make a living as a musician? Oh, every day. You're taking a huge risk. Like any band, it could all go really well or it could all just fuck up. When you came to signing the record deal with One Little Indian, were you hesitant, conscious of the pressures and responsibilities to come? Not really. I kind of like pressure. I work well under pressure. When we've got really important gigs, they're usually our best ones. When we signed the contract, I started making jokes about the flames leaping up and horns coming out of my head. We've just signed our soul to the devil. In some ways, it helps to be on an indie. You get complete artistic control. Major labels in England are shit. They didn't understand us at all. They tried to say I was half Sinead O'Connor and half Lenny Kravitz. I'm not half of anything. I'm skinned from Skunk and Nancy, and that's that. And you can fuck off, you bunch of cunts. The more you get into the music business, the more you have to really hold on to your integrity. We find ourselves saying, no, 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 we're not going to do that. What have you turned down? Working with a huge American TV personality for a start, it would have meant we'd have been huge in America. We said no because we didn't want to be huge in America doing a comedy song. Are you going to tell us who that huge US TV star was? No way. Skunk and Nancy appeared on Top of the Pops last year playing with Bjork. Surreal? It was fun because it wasn't really us. We didn't take it that seriously. Bjork's really mad and good fun to be around, so the whole day was really nice. We just got pissed. What do you drink? Well, I got blasted on tequila last night, which is a bad thing, because the last time I drank it, I forgot the latter half of the evening and did a lot of things that I'm embarrassed about. Snogging couples, puking up in taxis, sleeping with the wrong people. My favourite drink at the moment is called a cocksucker. It's Baileys and butterscotch. It's delicious. I love it. It's a horny drink. It tickles my spot. Do you like being a star? It's a sign that you're doing well. I like that. What I don't like are infringements on your personal life, which is beginning to happen to me. People are getting a bit too interested in who I'm sleeping with. Once you sign to a record label, I really do think you sell your soul. Somebody asked me, what's the rudest thing you've ever said to someone? It was live on American radio. I said that when you sign to a record label, you have this feeling that eventually you're going to get fucked. So you should try and get a bit of KY jelly in there and enjoy the fuck as opposed to a dry fuck up the ass. Try to enjoy the experience. Sounds like you've learned to let go of some of your anger. Oh no, I'll never let any anger go. I'm just as irate. But I understand what it is to be in a band in 1996. It's not all music and gigs. There's a lot more to it. I got into this because I wanted to entertain them to get some things across to people and have fun at the same time and earn some money. You don't want much, do you? Well, if you don't want it all, you don't want nothing. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to albums, and the first album reviewed this week is Filth Pig by Ministry. Reviewed by Jason Arnott, he gives this one three Ks. With four years having elapsed since their last LP, we expected Ministry to blast back with a juggernaut of radical ideas. Stun us once again, show us the way. Ever since the 1988 classic The Land of Rape and Honey, Al Jorgensen and his long-suffering sidekick Paul Barker have reinvented themselves with each new instalment. 
Some 69, the last Ministry album, rejuvenated the alien thrash genre by turning it into a vicious, mechanised cyborg. Filth Pig then begs the question of what went awry. It's a good album, but this is Ministry we're talking about. The pioneers who inspired a thousand outfits to crank their drum machines, guitars and samples up to 666. The band who produced the awesome Jesus Built My Hot Rod and inspired development in such bands as Anthrax and Sepultura. Some 69 opened rousingly with the excellent NWO. Surprisingly, the first truly striking track on Filth Pig is its third, Lava. The opening reload is a reasonable hate bomb, but no answer to its utterly brain-shagging equivalent on the last LP. Somehow, it lacks the focus and certainly the drive. Lava has a lumbering one-eyed riff and a Middle Eastern vocal sample, which recalls the old track Hezbollah. Typical ministry, although at six and a half minutes, it's a tad over long. The choppity tribal crumbs keeps the standard up, but the sober useless, while not quite its own namesake, doesn't seem to go anywhere. Neither do the eyebrow raising the commercial lay lady lay of first single to fall, which is worryingly uneventful. That's the overall feeling with Filth Pig. A lot of it's potent, but dynamics just don't enter the equation. Dead Guy is this album's obvious highlight, a godly reminder of how electrifying ministry can be. It pummels the shit out of a helmet style riff. Dead Guy is the moment when Ministry stop treading water and start kicking sharks in the air. You certainly can't accuse Filth Pig of being Psalm 70, but perversely, we might have been happier if it was. Maybe Jurgensen and Barker have become mature. A terrifying thought. Filth Pig shouldn't prove the fall of Ministry, but neither is it a prime rasher. The next review is for Steel Pole Bathtub with their album Scars From Falling Down. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this gets 4Ks. Listening to San Franciscan Bruiser's Steel Pole Bathtub is akin to chatting to a stranger in the pub and then noticing he's got a dead rodent peeking out of his top pocket. Amiable and civilised it may be, but it's always a strong sense of menace and lunacy. The trio have always had a great talent for hammering huge melodies out of the bleakest noise and their move to a major label has done nothing to blunt their psychotic edge. And thank goodness for that. The band have a winning way with the unorthodox and unusual. Many tunes start off with straightforward driving riffs but disintegrate rapidly, as if the trio have started playing along to separate tunes echoing around their own heads. But it's always an undeniable momentum to the chaos. Thick bass lines and Darren Morex's thumping drums prodding reluctant harmonies to the fore. The 500 Club is a great opener. Walls of dense careering noise tumbling around your ears as Mike Moraski does things which are quite possibly illegal with his guitar. Population 2 is a disturbing wheeze. Dale Flatham intoning, I know something about you, like a creepy stalker, while the swirling rhythms and stop-start riffs lend the tune a defiantly unhinged air. Surrender pubbles on and on, continually shoving filthy guitar shards into your face with scant regard for your safety. The San Franciscan trio definitely worship at the altar of the mighty Black Sabbath. The conversation is murky sludge, as melodic as it is manic. Kansas borrows so heavily from primetime Aussie vocal harmonies that you half expect the tub men to own up and start hollering let's go fucking crazy. But this is 70s doom riffing filtered through the crazy post-punk structurings of the butthole surfers, with bland, random samples poking through the mire. You'll laugh, but you'll laugh nervously. Steel Pole Bathtub have been lurching around the fringes of the underground uh, for far too long. This album may just give them the opportunity to belch their acrid bile into mainstream faces. The next album reviewed is All the Worlds of Rage by English Dogs. 
reviewed by Morant This Gets 4Ks. Despite being down to a free piece, this band just keep getting better. There are a couple of fillers here, but tracks like I've Got a Gun and in particular Anti-Fascist Rant Delete It, kind of a punk Alice in Chains make this worth finding. The dogs have let some of that Yankor influence them, but here it's more defiant than the whining we get from some of our US cousins. Top stuff. The last album reviewed this week is Fall From Grace by Next Step Up. This one again is reviewed by Morat and this gets 3Ks. Baltimore's hardcore hoodlums follow up their excellent Intentacill EP with this mundane offering. Previous material was effortlessly heavy but Fall From Grace sees them trying too hard and ending up with that death metal hardcore sound that rarely works. There are moments of greatness like Bent Not Broken but this is still a step down for Next Step Up. Charts and number one in the albums chart this week is Wild One, the very best of Finn Lizzy. Number one in the singles chart is Lump by the Presidents of the United States of America and number one in the indie LPs chart is Smash by Offspring. The readers top 10 this week comes from Seb Waldeck from Evesham. Their chart begins one Civil War Guns and Roses, two Halibut I Name Iron Maiden, three Master of Puppets Metallica, four Hell Patrol Judas Priest, five Remains to be Seen Skid Row, six The Trooper Iron Maiden, seven Seasoned in the Abyss Slayer, eight Mouth for War Pantera, nine Symphony of Destruction Megadeth, and ten Nativity and Black Black Sabbath. Star Tracks this week comes from uh, The Prodigy Band Tris. Their chart begins one State of the World Address Biohazard, two Astro Creek 2000 White Zombie, three Betty Helmet, four Far Beyond Driven Pantera, and five Stacked Up by Sensor. Next week in Kerrang Bank Issues, Brit Rock, right here, right now. The noise of 96 and you made it happen. Also, Soundgarden, Offspring, and Def Leppard. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next Wednesday as usual. I hope you're all doing well out there and uh, talk to you all soon. Bye for now.